This is the Retail Politics Podcast. Here we strive to give you the best political information about your nation. One download at a time. Here's your host, former congressional correspondent and award-winning reporter, Jerry Shields. Thank you, Dave, and thank you, listeners, for spending 30 minutes of your precious time with us as we break down for you the important issues confronting America today. This week on our special Easter edition, we will talk about the politics of religion with Jay Gioni Palmer, men's minister at the Metropolitan African Methodist Episcopal Church of Washington, D.C., right down the street from the White House. Welcome, Gioni. Hey, Jerry. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's good to reconnect with you, my friend. You and I met uh, when we were in the U.S. Capitol. We were congressional reporters. You worked for Newsday for eight years, mm-hmm. and then you went on to uh, become the spokesman for the Congressional Black Caucus, then worked for the Obama administration. And now you're in Divinity School, and you're ready to become a reverend and a preacher, and you're going to be working for the big boss. The big boss. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was talking to a friend today, so he said to me, he has to make the coffee every morning. He says to his wife, why do I have to make the coffee every morning? She says, because it's in the Bible. It says it. It's the Bible. He gives her, what do you show me in the Bible where it says I got to make the coffee? And she turns the page and she points to Hebrews. <laughs> Hebrews. Hebrews. I like that one. I might have to use that one. That's right. Let's get to it. Point blank. Let me ask you. Should religious leaders, particularly Christian leaders, try to inspire political action? The answer is yes. I mean, if you look at the um, history of the church, the history of Christianity, um, it was um, very much involved with uh, politics. I mean, I look at um, Jesus as a leader of a social movement. You have to understand the um, the milieu in which Jesus lived in Roman-occupied Palestine. They were an oppressed and marginalized people. Um, I think one interpretation of uh, the um, crucifixion of Jesus is that it was a lynching. And in fact, you know, um, crucifixion was used to execute political prisoners. It meant it sent a statement, right? So in the very, right there in the beginning in uh, the gospels, but then in the early history of the church, they were persecuted, Yes, right? And it wasn't until um, uh, Constantine came on that there were, you know, a lot of reforms. And I think that um, particularly within the African-American tradition, um, religious traditions, the church has been central to political, social, economic, and educational movements. So I think it is very relevant. And if, you know, I like to say, if your religion ain't revolution, then you're just getting high. <laughs> That's great. I love the, I love the, uh, the metaphor, you know, saying that, you know, Jesus's crucifixion was a lynching because as you say, that's what they, uh, they did to political people back then. And, you know, in, in, in terms of talking to this, everybody has their beliefs. We have a lot of listeners who are Muslim or Jewish, but if we just say everybody has their beliefs and we look at the Bible, which obviously is the most powerful and impactful book in human history. If we just look at it as a book of literature and accept everybody's, you know, Jesus was the most important figure 
uh, seen in uh, in history. I mean, he made the most impact. But as you say, he was a man of political action. I mean, I think turning the tables over in the temple was a big move. That's about as political as you can get and as forceful as any protest since. And, and it was what got him killed. Um, so um, do you see Jesus not as just a religious leader, but also as a political hero? I think Jesus was definitely a religious leader, a political uh, hero. He was a, um, a model for how one um, educates people. I think of uh, Jesus's ministry as a ministry of teaching, preaching, and healing. And early in the book of Luke, when Jesus is at the um, synagogue on the Sabbath um, in, in Nazareth, he is given a scripture. The scripture is from Isaiah uh, 61, I believe. And Jesus says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives and recover the sight to the blind. Right. And he sits down wow, and says, says it all. Oh, yeah. And he sits down and, and he says, this prophecy has been this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Right. And so you got to look at what happens. Right. A lot of times people just want to focus on that passage. Right. Which is important. It lets you know that, you know, bring good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty for the captives. Right. But then the people in the temple are like, well, who is this guy? What is he? Who taught right. him to right. know all of this right. stuff? Yeah. And right. they become so enraged that right. they pick him up. And take him to a cliff on the edge of town. But the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit is at work and they're yeah. unable to throw him off the cliff. And instead, Jesus walks through the crowd and goes back about his ministry. Right. If that ain't political, I don't know what is. <laughs> so, so many people use religion and the Bible and the scripture to support their political view. They, they quote scripture to bolster our arguments. We had the moral majority in the 1990s. We have the conservative evangelicals now and the liberal Baptists now. What do you make of people using scripture to support their political views? And it almost reminds me of that old line about statistics. You remember that, that line about statistics? But people do use the scripture to support their political views. And you know, how do you look at that? I mean, the Bible is around. I mean, I th I think that um, it's natural to do. I think to me, the more interesting question is what theological perspective and what hermeneutics, what interpretation are you bringing to that scripture, right? So for me, I read, you know, uh, Luke 4, and I hear a message of liberation. I hear a message of social justice, right? That Jesus you know, um, is, is if Jesus was here today, Jesus would be saying, love is love, mm -hmm. science is real, mm -hmm. women's rights mm -hmm. are human rights, mm -hmm. and Black Lives Matter. Right. That's what I hear from yeah. that, from that scripture. Now, there are other people who don't hear that. They may only hear, you know, um, he sent me here to heal the brokenhearted, mm -hmm. so that you just want to be comforting mm -hmm. to people, or that maybe you just engage in charity. And that, is your theological right. perspective. Now, I would argue that a theology that leads to that type of interpretation of the scripture is devoid of the history, which I was talking about earlier, right? That, you know, Jesus was a leader of an oppressed people at the time, right? There's this whole history. I mean, people did it. Martin Luther King did it. I mean, 
Billy Graham did it. Franklin Graham, you know, does it. Uh, William Barber. I, to me, um, I wouldn't, I've never, I, I usually don't do it. And the only reason why I'm I'm talking about scripture, because, you know, we're having a, a specific conversation about this. But I think that most politicians and most political people don't really understand right, the right. history of what was going on when this text was written and who was listening to it. So I think it's it's dangerous. They don't know what they're talking about. Right. But Martin Luther King, first and foremost, was a pastor. Right. And I was just going to say he was a reverend, Christian reverend, uh, started the Poor People's Campaign, motivated legions across the country, engaged in demonstration, peaceful civil disobedience, racial, economic, environmental justice. But I was reading a letter from the Birmingham jail this week. I just that's before we talked. And one of the things he complained in there was about the laxity. And I think he was talking about the white church. But I have an African-American friend very involved in her her church, and she believes that laxity extends to a lot of church. churches, actually, whether, you know, where it's the synagogue, where it's the temple, uh, all churches. So she thinks that, you know, more churches should create social justice, social services ministry, train the ministers, the foot soldiers, get out there, talk about health, talk about, you know, helping the the prisoners get readjusted to society. Um, and, And she was saying something, she said, Jesus didn't work in a building. You know, he was out when he talked to the woman in the well. He was out when he uh, sat with the tax collectors, the so-called sinners back there. He was out. Do you think the church needs to do more of that? Absolutely. You know, um, I mean, you laughed earlier when I said if uh, religion ain't revolution, you're just getting high. What does that mean? Right. To me, that means that if all you do is engage in praise and worship. Yeah. Right. We should do that. Yeah. Yeah. We definitely should do that. But if that's all you do, you might, I mean, that's no different than, you know, pouring out a little bit of brown liquor, putting on some, uh, you know, Marvin Gaye and finding somebody who, you know, you can get down with, if you know what I mean, right? right? right like right. W- the real work of the church and what Jesus did, it requires us to be fully committed to the lives of the community, right? Not just the spiritual life, not just the life of worship, but Actually, and it's not, and yes, we should feed people who are hungry, but we should also pick up a hammer and dismantle, maybe, let me take a second, pick a sledgehammer and dismantle those systems that allow people to be hungry and then pick up the hammer and the nails and the saw and build a house where people are no longer hungry, build new systems. What, what do you think we need to do to get to that point? Well, first of all, I think that we need to reorient our theology, how we think about God and our relationship to God, right? If, if all we're supposed to do is praise and worship God, well, then you just praise and worship God. But I believe that humanity was created to be co-laborers with God, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To be co-laborers. What does that mean? And you can, in both Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, provide different accounts of the creation. But ultimately, God is partnering, asking or partnering with humanity to bring about an earthly kingdom here on earth, right? That we're being caretakers of creation. So if we begin to think like that, right? That we're caretakers of creation, not lords of creation, 
right? Then we have a, then it, it changes how we relate to each other. We, 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 we see not only the divinity in ourselves when we look in the mirror, but we see them when we look at our brothers and sisters, our wives, our children, our neighbors, when we mm-hmm. are out mm-hmm. in nature, right? We become mm-hmm. more, we see the divinity, we see the presence of the divine in all of that. And so that shift in theological thinking will change your, how you think about yourself and the world, your psychology. It will change Mm -hmm. the way you interact with other people, your sociology. It will change your relationship with the environment and the natural world, the ecology. It will change the way Mm -hmm. that you think about how you use and spend your money and other resources, your economy, right? And then it also thinks it change how you think about how we receive and communicate information, education. And then ultimately, if you've done all of that work, it will change your approach to our politics and our government. So, you know, it was Karl Marx who called religion the opiate of the masses, which many people took as offensive. But I I think there's some kind of truth in that, in the sense that, you know, when you find someone, a person with unshakable faith, it's like they can endure anything. You know, I was was reading a biography of Harriet Tubman recently, and, you know, she was just, um, uh, uh, you know, such an inspiration in the sense that, you know, she she escapes slavery, but she goes back and, and, and gets other people and she risks her life and she risks of freedom. And um, the thing that I got out of that was that, you know, slaves made it through that horrible period because of their faith. They just believed that, hey, things are going to get better. We're going to get rescued. And and my, and my mother had this. My mother, um, you know, she was told she couldn't have any more children. And, you know, she just prayed and she made a deal. She said, look, God, if you give me a, a son, I'll, I'll name him Gerard. And, and that's how I got it. And she had tuberculosis in the 70s. And she, she, she everybody counted her out. The priest gave her the last rites. And she lasted for 17 more years. How do we attain that unshakable faith? It's got to be shaken. <laughs> I mean, first and foremost, it's got to be shaken. You got to you got to question. I mean, I say that in jest to some extent, but also in, in, in with some degree of seriousness. Right. I think what a lot of people of faith and Christians in particular have, uh, and I, actually, I'm just going to talk about Christians right now, right? Um, but we have, we pray. We worship, we praise. How often do we lament? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? How often do we in it, it not only in I mean invite the, ourselves to sit with our sorrow, mm-hmm. with our pain? Right. God, why is this happening to me? Mm-hmm. God, why did you allow this to happen to me? We're afraid to even ask those questions, right? Maybe God had nothing to do with it. I don't know. But the point is, is let's sit with it, right? If you sit with it, it can be a a form of, of worship, 
right? It can be a form of protest, and it can also lead to resistance and resiliency. Mm-hmm. I mean, many of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. For the wicked carried us away, captivity, requiring from us a song. But how can we sing a song in a strange land? That's lament right there, brother. That's lament. There's a prayer, and I know they use a lot in the 12 Steps program called the Serenity Prayer. Give me the courage to mm. change things and, and make me know, let me know. But there's a great line in there, and it says, um, it's, it's the seven lines at, at the bottom, and a lot of people don't know. And it says, hardships are the pathway to peace. And I think that's what you're talking about when you're talking about y- your faith has to be shaken. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, our faith, I mean, I, I, I to me, if you're, you know, if you don't wrestle with lament, if your faith isn't sort of tested through these hardships, it's everything, you know, I, I mean, this, then what do you, what, how do you have faith? Faith seeking understanding, right? I mean, I think of this like this, uh, like with love, right? Um, my wife and kids love me despite me being less than perfect, mm-hmm. right? Because they see the real and authentic. Mm-hmm. Right. If my kids only loved me, then what they're it, what is it, that's worship, right? That's just blind, right. and maybe right. I'm compelling right. them to do that, right? right. Like right. we love and we have faith despite our challenges, mm-hmm. right? I, my wife loves me, I believe, even though I can be get on her last nerve. <laughs> Right. And vice versa. Right. Right. But that's authentic. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. real. Right. And so, you know, faith, we I I, I think that, you know, we're we're fortified. And and, then again, it comes with understanding. Again, I go back to the point of us being co-laborers with God. Right. That we're not alone. And, you know, God is with us, but we are and, and, and God is with us in the, also in the Holy Spirit, in the people that we are with, that we are around. I know, you know, God is in my son. So when whenever I'm with my, my children and my wife, I know I feel the presence of God. You were talking about oppression and, uh, you know, the pilgrims came to America to escape religious persecution. And though we claim to be a Christian nation, we never really have been, right? We tried to exterminate the Native Americans in their own land. We took it. And then we persecuted African Americans for hundreds of years. Uh, What do you believe we need to do to truly become a Christian nation? Well, you know, um, Jerry, that is a... um... So I would argue that the extermination of Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans, the um, pillaging of our natural resources were all um, justified under a particular theological view. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, there is a there are theological views that believe, well, if you are poor, right, it's because mm-hmm. you lack God's favor. Mm-hmm. If you are rich and have good health and good fortune, it's because you have the favor of God. Now, I don't believe that to be true, but right. there are 
theological perspectives, you know, from that. So one could argue that all of the things that you just said in, in catalog are supported by a view of, you know, a particular Christian theological view. Now, that's not the view of me. And to me, I think that that is a view that runs counter to the very teaching, preaching, and healing ministry of Jesus. But since this is a um, an Easter-oriented um, um, podcast, I would like us to, you know, on Monday, Thursday, the, um, the Thursday before Easter, the day before Easter, um, um, Good Friday, which, you know, was the Last Supper. And I, you know, one of my favorite accounts of the Last Supper comes in John chapter 13. And the focus of the John account is not on the food. It's not on the wine, the blood. It's not on the meal. The focus is when Jesus takes off his fine garments, you know, he takes off his, uh, his suit jacket and, you know, the cufflinks and unrolls, rolls up his shirts and, and puts on an apron and proceeds to wash the feet of mm -hmm. his mm -hmm. disciples. Mm -hmm. And one of them says, no, 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 I can't have you do this. He says, no, but look, and he says, I, I, I'm the student, you're the teacher. And, and, and he says, no, but the teacher is showing you what to do and what Jesus is saying and doing in that action and that in order to follow Jesus, you must be willing to humble yourself, to take off your fine garments and do the dirty work of ministering and serving to others. And then at the, at the end, Jesus concludes that chapter by giving a new commandment, which is to love one another as Jesus loved us right so what i would say in order for us to be a christian nation within the framework of the story that i just recounted from um john chapter 13 is we have to want for someone else what we want for ourselves we have mm -hmm. to oppose things happening to other people that we would not want to happen to us. Like it, we should be just as upset that somebody in this country, in this land of plenty goes to bed hungry mm -hmm. when we go to bed with our bellies full. That last supper is, is very poignant to me because it's at that point where Jesus says, um, you know, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to, you know, that's, that's the most selfless act, right? You lay down your life for your friends. And we've seen that in politics. Lincoln did it and King did it. Um, and, um, but there, and I think I, when you mentioned the theologies, I get, I think it gets back to what we were talking about a little bit in the beginning is that people interpret scriptures and they use this Bible to, 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 to kind of do what, do what they want and, and, um, and, and reason what they're doing, you know, find a reason in what they're doing. But, um, you know, we talk about humans being the only beast, you know, I think of humans just like another beast on the planet and they're, they're supposed to have the, the capacity to reason that other beasts do not have, but we do such mean things to each other. I mean, you know, whether it's a parent bullying their kid or, you know, some kind of abuse or murder or any of those kind of things. Uh, why do you think that is? You know, um, 
you know, man, that's a, you know, that's a tough one, right? I mean, I, I, I think that, um, you know, there, there are people who can answer this from a anthropological, you know, perspective right, or, right. you know, a biological perspective. But, um, I think that it is, um, you know, with, and those people can answer it with more authority, you know, than me, but I think that we naturally have a, and, and perhaps it's, you know, through the, the history and the development of, you know, our species, mm-hmm. the fear of there being a lack of resources, mm-hmm. right? We have a scarcity mentality, even in right. a land of an, of abundance, right? right. We, um, and often, you know, I think people think, that if somebody else has something, then that means we're at a disadvantage. I don't believe that to be the case. I think that we live in a, in a, in a land of plenty. Um, and um, sure, there are people who don't have enough, but I think it's because that resources are not um, shared right. and um, in a way that in, you know, powers people. I mean, I think it's very human to want to make sure that you are safe and secure. Um, And often when people feel, you know, threatened or um, they're likely to engage in activities that um, aren't productive and conducive to not only the well-being of others, but of themselves, right? Like, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, um, one of the things I say is one of the reasons why I don't spank my kids is because I don't want to be a victim of elder abuse. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, right, I mean, right. I mean I'm joking. I, that's no, but not that could, why yeah, I don't I know spank. what you're saying. I know the point. Yeah, <laughs> You know, yeah, yeah. but it's like you do something and it can come back, right? True. We're not thinking 360, right? Right, right, right. And, and that's interesting because I think what you're saying, and I, and I agree with you totally, is that, you know, we are – you know, it's the, the law of the jungle survival of the fittest, right? So there's that innate, you know, in us that says, hey, we, we have to survive. But what you're saying, and I, I think you're right on target, is that we have to make an effort. We have the capacity to make the effort to do for others rather than just do for ourselves. And that's the thing that separates us from the others that you are saying, and, and I agree with you, that we have to do. We have to make that effort um, to, to, to help others and to share. I mean, if not, we're just like the, the, the lions and the tigers and everybody else. you agree? Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, um, going back to the idea of shifting our theology, shifting how we think about God and our relationship with God, that we are to be co-laborers. And there's, um, I forget exactly where, but let's, you know, um, the Lord's Prayer, right? Mm -hmm. Our -hmm. Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, right? So that prayer comes to us after the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is in there, you know, it says on earth as it is in heaven. Right. I think too often we skip over that. We may say it, but do we really sit in contemplation with that and other parts of that prayer? But if we sit in contemplation with on earth as it is in heaven, what we're being told is that it's not just about what happens when we die, 
and our soul goes on. It is about our earthly condition. We want the will of God to rule here on earth where peace and justice prevail, where people are not exploited, people are not hungry, people do not go unsheltered, people are not robbed of justice and denied mercy. And, and it can be done. You know, I remember uh, there was a great movie about Mother Teresa and, you know, she went out on the streets and, um, you know, she was told not to go out on the streets, stay away from those people. And she went out anyway because she was curious and she was compassionate and she started feeding a family and it got bigger and bigger. And I remember a very jealous nun walks in behind her and says, so how do you think you're going to feed all the poor in India? And she just turns around and she says, if you can't feed a hundred, just feed one. And, and that's really, uh, that's what where it starts, right? It starts at one. And uh, if you can help one, you know, and, and, and maybe it builds, but at least do what you can to help those in your orbit. Yeah, no, I agree with that wholeheartedly. As we look ahead, what do you see in the evolution of Christianity in America? What do you see down the road? What would you like to see? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. You know, um, I think that, you know, like I, you know, I think it's, it's clear from, um, Hopefully it's clear that I think that there are a lot of expressions of Christianity. I mean, right. you know, we've got so many different denominations. I mean, we don't even all Christians don't celebrate Easter at the same time. Right. right. Which is right. a right. defining um, characteristic of uh, Christianity. But I would think that for um, the uh, American church, obviously, um, the pandemic um, has really um, change the way, not, not only the way we worship, but how we think about worship. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we're not able to gather in person to, um, take communion or celebrate the Eucharist or the Lord's supper, whatever you call it in your own, um, particular tradition. Um, we've been doing it at home mm -hmm. and my, and, and in many respects that, um, um, I, I we should, yes, we need human connection. But in the beginning of the church, right, the early Christians gathered in homes. And if you read the gospel, you know, a lot of the teaching, preaching and healing ministry took place in, uh, in homes mm -hmm. around the around the table while they enjoyed, uh, you know, a meal mm -hmm. fellowship mm -hmm. with each other. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, as we move through this pandemic and come out on the other side, I think that there will be like, how do we, of course, come back together in larger congregations, but how can we maintain some of the intimacy of our um, worship and of our lament? I hope we don't lose lament. I mean, this is the season of lament. There's been a lot of lamenting, but let's not just, you know, uh, hopefully once the pandemic is over, we don't stop lamenting because the pandemic is no, lo is, is no longer here. But we also uh, lament about the, the injustices in our society, the systemic um, uh, inequalities that are intergenerational and in that the, the church um, leans more into bringing about an you know, an earthly kingdom of, uh, of God that focuses on those things that we talked about, justice and mercy and eradicating, you know, inequality. I mean, I, I think that that 
is um, something that the church has always been called to do. Um, the followers of Jesus have always been called to do. And I think that um, we, we need to think about those types of things, um, you know, much, much more. Excellent. It was wonderful to catch up with your friend. We appreciate you coming to us and obviously wishing you a very happy Easter to you and your loved you. ones and to all our listeners out there who celebrate. And, um, you know, it's uh, we wish you all the best as you move on into your divinity school and become a preacher and a reverend. And uh, I'm going to be in one of those pews on someday up there. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll be listening. I'll be I'll be taking notes. So, all right. Hey, thanks again, Tony. Amen, brother. Thank you. Now, bringing my technical producer, Brad, maybe the Wizard of Pods. How you doing, Brad? I'm good. Uh, great interview, Jerry. Uh, happy uh, Easter. Happy Easter to you, buddy. Now, I know you are full Polish-American, and I grew up in an Irish-American neighborhood, but we had this crazy Easter tradition where you had to eat kibasi, you know, which is the Polish <laughs> sausage. So you'd go house to house, and you'd have smoked, you'd have fresh, and I, I don't know what it was, but they had these two um, stores that sold it, Chev's and Swayaki, and starting on that Monday before for Easter, the line was down the street. It was like the soup Nazi on, on Seinfeld. These people That's just crazy, would, be, yeah. <laughs> would just be waiting in line for their capacity. Right? So that oh, was boy. that was in Philly, correct? That was in Philly, right? Yeah, so yeah. did you guys do that on Easter? Well, I, I'm you know, from Buffalo, New York, and yeah. Buffalo has a major, major Polish community. And uh -huh. uh, their, um, I guess, a focal point is something called the Broadway Market off of uh -huh. you know, Broadway in, in Buffalo. And that's where all the Polish people, but other people, would get a lot of the Polish goodies. Kielbasa, buttered lamb was always a big thing at Easter no time. No kidding. And uh, I mean, for us... Kabasa was a year. It was a year long thing, and, right. and sadly, sadly, you had you have no idea how many times I ate boiled, fresh kielbasa with oh, sauerkraut. Yeah. It is oh, just awful, yeah. awful, awful. <laughs> like, and and so I grew up as a kid, and I I really only like smoked kielbasa. Well, I was going to say you're a smoked yeah, man. There you go. Yeah, but now I mean, fresh kielbasa is great on the grill, even in, yes. in a pan with olive oil. My mom used to boil it with the sauerkraut. It was so bad. <laughs> So bad, but we used to eat, eat kielbasa all the time. So that's a weird phenomenon that it was like an Easter thing in in Philly. I will tell you this in Buffalo, and I, I think this extends outside of Buffalo for a lot of Polish communities. Uh, on Saturday before Easter, you were to take uh, little kids would take their Easter baskets, and the parents would take uh, what would be called shinsunka breakfast. It would uh -huh. be eggs and butter and uh -huh. horseradish uh -huh. and sometimes even wine and the kielbasa uh -huh. Uh -huh. and bacon, everything that you would have for breakfast on uh, Easter. They would take a basket of all that stuff to church. Right. And you would sit in the pews. And, and this was actually a fun service because it was like, it was quick. It was like maybe 15, 20 minutes. The priest yeah. would come out, say a couple opening remarks, and then he'd get the holy water shooter thing and walk down the aisle, <laughs> dip it in the in the holy water, and just shoot holy water down every row of pews. Just, just and you were getting just like you know everyone's gonna get wet. It was like a Gallagher show. <laughs> And so, you know, the kids loved it because you're holding up your basket like, yeah, my buddy's got blessed. And then you would, yeah. you know, all the Polish people would go home and eat Shinsunka breakfast on Easter and all the uh, food was blessed. Yes. Uh, yes. With the, the 
what with the holy water yes so, so right right and we used to have a tradition like we go around each other's houses it was like playing monopoly you'd go get a beer here you get a beer there you get a beer there and all of a sudden you know you get home for dinner and uh conversation got uh very lively so you grew up catholic then i would imagine right yes uh yes, roman catholic yeah me too and um you know what were the what were the services like back then standard uh hour just under an hour yeah. of, of torture as a kid <laughs> yeah. you know and, and and the trick was you know if, if you got the bulletin that was proof you went to church oh, so yeah, if you're yeah, lucky yeah. there was a stack of bulletins in the back of the church you could just walk in <laughs> grab one and get the hell out of there that's great. We had a, a bunch of guys at the bar uh, that that we all eventually ended up hanging in. They were called the uh, Breakfast Club. And they'd stay in the bar all night and go to like maybe nine, ten in the morning, and they would send one guy to mass, <laughs> get all the bulletins, come back, make them sit through the homily. So, what was the homily about? So, when they went home to their wives, they had the bulletin and they knew what the homily was about. <laughs> The, uh, you know, it was funny because, you know, kids, we would uh, never want to be up early on Sunday. So we would go to noon mass. That was like the oh, last yeah. one you could get oh, in. Yeah. And, you know, grandma always went to 830 and 1030. Yes, yes, yes. And so, yeah, we're going to noon. We're going to noon. And then she would show up at noon. I didn't see you then. <laughs> the grandma detective. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm pretty sure the, the bulletin scam got foiled at some point. Like someone blew everyone's cover and there were never bulletins laying around the back of the church like during a service. That's great. That's great. Well, I was really, I was uh, really into it. I was like a big altar boy and I was actually headed to the seminary at one point and uh, maybe freshman high school, eighth grade. But then I worked in the church. I worked as a, as an assistant in church, put the vestments together and boy, I got an up close view and, and the priest, you know, the, I, you know, they, you realize they were human beings, you know, our, mm -hmm. our yeah. pastor was uh, Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, just a sour guy you know you're gonna contribute <laughs> then we had this one priest who was the drinker and uh fell flat on his face in the middle of a children's mass it was just wow so i don't know you think we held them up to uh too high of a standard a priest yeah i mean yeah i i guess um see i I didn't have that kind of relationship with the church. It was always it was always a hassle to me that yeah, I had to yeah. kind of get through. I I would consider myself agnostic at best. Right, right. I really wouldn't fully commit to to, to atheism. Who knows yeah. what I'll be saying on my deathbed? Right, right. Uh, I accept looking the for loopholes in the Christ. Bible. Yeah, is what yeah, be pretty doing. much. Yeah. But I, I I was never a true believer, so church yeah. to me was literally a waste of time. So. I'm trying to think. I, there was there's like one priest I actually remember. I, this is great. I, I, this is how Polish Buffalo is. The yeah. church that I used to go to near my grandmother's house was Our Lady of Chinstochowa. All right. Oh, oh my right. god! You should see it written out. It's it's like the whole alphabet <laughs> in one word. Our Lady of no, Chinstochowa. There is a right. there is a Z. There's a Z and a W. In there. <laughs> so. Yeah. So I would go to Our Lady of Chinstahava, and there was, I remember, I, I must have been like 10, 11, somewhere in that ballpark, and they got a young priest. Mm -hmm. So this guy must have been like, you know, in his early 30s, right mm -hmm. out of seminary. Mm -hmm. And and I remember relating to him and, and actually, pay, like, you know, he would like reference like a comic in the Sunday comics yes, like, during yes, his yes, sermons. Yes, and, and yes, I'd be like, yes. you read Marmaduke this morning? Yeah, you know? so exactly. I would, but I, for the life of me, I can't remember his name. 
But well, it's it's really funny you mention that because we did get one of those too, and uh, you know, I mean, we you know you hear about the scandal and all that kind of stuff. But this priest was really interesting because he was young. I met him at the playground. He was in shorts and a t-shirt playing basketball, and you know we're throwing around cursing out the game. And the next day he walks into class with his collar on. I'm like, oh my god, you know. But he was really nice. My mom had tuberculosis for years. She was in the hospital, mm. and uh, he kind of took me under his wing, and me and a couple other guys, and man, he would take us, you know, just kind of showed us the world outside the neighborhood, just nice restaurants, and take us to the beach, and he would take us to seminary, Olympic swimming pool, and never asked anything in return, never said, hey, I want you to join the priesthood, and of course, never did anything untoward, um, but the thing that he taught me that was really interesting, I mean, the nuns and the priests at the time just kept you on your knees, you're a sinner, you're going to hell, you don't do this, you know, but this guy, he, he this priest, he, he kind of taught us to pray uh, to whatever your higher power is uh, as a friend. You know, it was just like, you know, talk to them as a friend. And, and that was very comforting years later because you always felt like you had somebody with you. Someone always had your back, you know. And no, I still stay, yeah I, yeah, I stay in touch with them. And, and uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll write to them. And uh, just a great, great man. That's, 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 that's really beautiful. And, you know, there, now that I think about it now, I, I, there was a priest that I, that I knew very well right before I moved out of Buffalo in my 20s when I was already not going to church. There was a, a priest in Buffalo, Father Mike, Father Michael Oliver, who's no longer a priest, but he was in a band. Oh, he my was, he was He was in a band called Go Priest. And, and oddly enough, I, I can't believe I, I forgot about this when we were talking about priests. He was in a band that wrote a Christmas song called uh-huh. uh, Christmas Will Find You. Oh, nice. Which is, to this day, one of my all-time favorite Christmas songs. Isn't that nice? Yeah. And he would play out. Like, he would be out at the bars on Friday night yes, with his band yes, playing. Yes, yes, and then, yes. you know, in church all day Sunday. And he was, <laughs> you he was can relate, right? <laughs> really, really a, a lovely man. And, yeah. uh, you know, for whatever reason, you know, he left the priesthood. I, I just just reconnected with him this this year. We had a conversation yeah. on Zoom. Yeah. And, um it's nice, you know, to back to what you said to to have those relationships with with men that were were priests that 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 were great people and it's a shame that the the priesthood kind of got tarnished. Sure, to, to, for yeah. for year for decades now, yes, you know, for yes. for the longest time yeah. it was a big secret yeah. and now it's right. it's almost like a cliched yeah thing about priests and, and you don't hear anybody talking about great ones anymore and, that, and that's right yeah you, you were mentioning the one about the, the the band well this priest rode a bike through the neighborhood and god it was a scandal the old people like he's got he's got nice one this priest having on he's on a bike and it's you know and that, well that's the thing you know and 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 oddly enough you know we're talking about religion because the article that came out this week that uh in 2020 only 47% of adults in America are affiliated with the church now. It's like one of the first yeah. times it's dipped below 50%. Yeah. Yeah. And and you can see why, you know, going back to when we were kids decades ago, yeah. it was the guys that were trying to appeal to the youth. Right. <laughs> that, that they, you know, the priesthood, yeah. Yeah, we were normal dudes yes. too. We ride yeah. bikes and we read the comics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah. like rock and roll music. Yes. Um, and the old priests didn't like that. No way. Yeah, no. traditional, right? And, and now we're, you know, where is everyone going? No one's going to church. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's kind of interesting. But, uh, yeah, I like that, um, That you know, that we're talking. I mean, like anything, like police or doctors or what. I mean, you know, once there's a bad apple, and that's the cliche. But, I mean, everybody gets painted with the broad brush. 
brush, but um, mm, yeah. you know those, those good guys out there. They had uh, impacts on generations. So I want to wish you a happy Easter, my friend. Well, here I let's I, I I let's find a priest and get him on the podcast. Oh, yeah. I love that! I love that idea. And uh, let's let's talk about the Catholic, the modern Catholic Church. Sure, uh, sure. The drop in you know, and it's not just Catholicism that's losing right. you know uh, people in pews. It's uh, yeah. I got one uh, in mind. I do. I, one of my one of my uh, priests back in my parish in Chile, just a great guy, and uh, really res. Well, I shouldn't use the word, but he's resurrecting the, the congregation, which is cool. Um, yeah, so, I love yeah. it. Let's do it. Let's let's All get right. a let's get a father on the show. All right. All right. So you have a good holiday, my friend. You too. I'll enjoy my Shinsunka breakfast. <laughs> and I'll try to find some kibasi. <laughs> uh, so we're talking about Poland. We want to give a shout out to Thomas Barbowitz, who's a listener from Poland, who gave us a like. Carmen Fleetwood Paul, a New York corporate and public affairs writer and editor with TD Bank. Thank you, Carmen. Herbie Evans, the principal with Erasmus Inc. in Washington, D.C., Thank you, Mr. Evans. And I'd like to thank our executive producer, Mike Gugat, and of course, our technical producer, Brad Maybe, our announcer, Dave, and our contributing voice talent, John One Take Terzis, the voice over Tampa Bay. We will be back next week with another thrilling edition of the Retail Politics Podcast. But in closing, we want to wish all our Christian friends a happy Holy Day and to all our listeners of any faith. Blessings to you and your loved ones, and we hope that all you wish for is the least you receive. And remember, always read beyond the headlines. Have a great week. With the front row, award-winning reporter Gerard Shields takes you into the vanishing world of print news to a time when stories were reported, not invented or twisted. Imagine you have press credentials in the front row with Shields throughout his decades-long newspaper career covering political corruption, scandal, and heroics during the critical events of our time. With dozens of Amazon five-star reviews, Shields' latest work, The Front Row, is a passionate study of American journalism while delivering his own invaluable life lessons. The Front Row by Gerard Shields. Available now at Amazon.com.